thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Polar Times, the Apex podcast. My name is Henrietta Hammond and I'm a new host on the show. I'm a PhD student in the UK interested in Antarctic collections in British museums. And today I'm going to be interviewing Naomi Chapman, who is the Education and Outreach Assistant at the Polar Museum, part of the Scott Polar Research Institute at the University of Cambridge in the UK. I'm really looking forward to talking to her today about museum teaching, working with a range of age groups in polar education and a few different projects that she's been involved with as well. And full disclosure, Naomi is a former colleague of mine, so I'm really looking forward to just having a bit of a catch up too. So without further ado, let's jump into the interview. So hi, Naomi, and welcome to Polar Times. Thank you so much for being with us today. I'm really excited to talk to you about all things polar museums. We'll just start off with our usual Polar Times icebreaker, which is maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe how you came to work at the Polar Museum as well. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me, Henrietta. Um, so, yeah, well, it was a bit of a long time ago now. Um, so I first came to the Polar Museum, I think it was 2012. I'd been teaching for years and years and years. <laughs> <laughs> we won't go into that now I, I I'd been teaching for many many years I'd trained as a teacher I'd worked in middle schools I'd worked in primary schools I'd done some headships and um I'd always always wanted to do museum education and um and actually it was an accident that sort of made me think twice um when you're physically not in a good place you suddenly reevaluate what's important and I thought life's too short not to do what I really always wanted to do which was to work in museum education so I jumped ship and started volunteering at the Polar Museum and then the education role became available and I applied for it as a job share with my colleague Rosie and we got it and the rest is history. Oh great and so did did you have much knowledge of the polar regions before you started then or was it just a none? Interesting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I just just admitted that. <laughs> so what what drew you to the Polar Museum? I live very very close by, and when I'd had the accident, um, I wasn't too good at walking, so it was nice and close, so I could walk there. Also, the volunteer role that I was doing, I was transcribing the original accession registers, and. Um, and my degree was in history. I started off as a history teacher. And so I found that absolutely fascinating, sort of trawling through the sort of 1940s typed stuff and um, putting in all these bizarre details. And it was really interesting. And that kind of got me hooked. And I also did some volunteer conservation stuff at the same time. And I think I got the bug when I was cleaning a pair of skis, wooden skis, heroic era skis. And I noticed there was scratching on the surface and I, I spoke to the conservator and I said you know what's going on what's this you know I've just found this and um she came over and looked at it and we realized that they were Bowers's skis Birdie Bowers skis and the ends had been hacked off these skis and he'd scratched his name in them and he was famously short 
um, same height as me, I then discovered. Um, so um, it was that, like, whoa and the conservator didn't know they were Bowers skis and so it was very exciting and that was the hook that absolutely got me I was yeah I was done for then that's awesome I didn't know that story what a good yeah, yeah. what a way to join <laughs> starting <laughs> on Bernie Bowers skis I've that's always awesome. had a soft spot for him ever since then <laughs> <laughs> And so in that even very short story, I feel like we've covered a few different museum jobs, conservators and, um, you know, kind of your collections experience, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And that's something that maybe our listeners don't know very much about. There are lots of different kinds of jobs in museums, as well as um, being the curator who puts on the exhibitions. So maybe could you tell us a little bit about what it is that your role entails, perhaps a, a day in the life if you <laughs> like to talk about that sort of thing. Okay, so um, I'm part of the education and outreach team. There are two of us. Um, so between us, we do um, the equivalent of a one-person job. So when we first started, Rosie and I, we split the role into two. So my colleague Rosie does events and um, festivals and family education and outreach and engagement and then I do the schools and the more formalized public engagement so I work with school trips who come in and visit whether they are um, self-guided so the teacher has taken them around the museum or whether they have booked a workshop with me in which case I will run a workshop or a session with them I also work with undergraduates and graduates I do teacher training as well Um, so it's all that formalized learning um if that makes sense so we split it into the formal and the informal and then we both do a bit of the community stuff as well depending on where our specific interest lies so I'm more of the historian and the humanities and my colleague Rosie is more of the science focus so what sort of what would be your kind of standard maybe you had a a school group coming in and you have a a lesson that you like to teach or an activity that you like to do what would be your kind of go-to the most popular session by far is exploration because lots of schools want to study Shackleton or Scott or Scott and Amundsen and certainly the heroic era is much studied um, particularly in um, primary sector schools um so that's incredibly popular so that is by far the one I'm asked to do the most (laughs) (laughs) I tend I tend to veer away from the really obvious stuff so I always tell I always base the session around lesser known parts of those expeditions so I do quite a lot to do with the winter journey and when Wilson and Bowers and Cherry Garrard went looking for penguin eggs that's very popular. I do the northern party being stranded and the ice cave, and that's a pretty horrific story. So I do that one as well. That's very popular. Everybody likes a nice gory survival story. So yeah, I tend to get them to think about or, or, or to highlight the research aspects of the expedition as opposed to what's commonly called the race. I try and avoid that, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A, a different kind of look into the polls, I guess. Absolutely. And also sort of celebrating the lesser known characters. So we've talked a lot about the Antarctic, mm-hmm. but are there Arctic um, collections or, or stories that you like to teach as well? 
there are Arctic collections and there are Arctic stories. They're not asked for as much. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's on my radar. I really want to try and sort of up that and push that a bit more. So certainly this year with, with COVID having stopped school visits, there's been an awful lot of planning and development going on instead and tentatively looking at ways to bring the Arctic to life a bit more and encourage school groups to think differently about it. And um, yeah, so that's definitely in development. But yeah, we have a massive Arctic collection. So that's really exciting. Can't wait to sort of get in and explore it a bit bit more. And once we're once we're all back, once we're back in the museum, that'll oh. be a nice, <laughs> nice feeling. <laughs> oh, it'll be so good. <laughs> um, so yeah, we've we've kind of mentioned that you teach a bit of a range of, of students, a, a range of age groups and, mm-hmm. and interests as well. And so I was wondering whether the things that you talk about with them differ at all or or whether there are some similarities or whether, you know, people from the very young to the much older can gain similar understandings from collections. It really depends upon the age group and and their knowledge. I mean, sometimes I will have a key stage one group, so a group between the ages of five and seven who are so incredibly knowledgeable, it's scary. (laughs) (laughs) But then, you know, I've also had groups who genuinely don't know very much, who are much older. So it, it is always interesting. So I always start with the same activity where I kind of work out where I'm starting from so what they already know so I always start with a little quiz thing um so that I can kind of assess where we're starting from yeah (laughs) and also obviously with the younger children I tend not to go into any gruesome details whereas as soon as you're getting to sort of 9 10 11 you're totally up for the gruesome details <laughs> that's when the gruesome details are the best bit i think yeah <laughs> absolutely absolutely <laughs> um and that actually leads me really nicely into my next question which is um about what the difference is and maybe what the best part about being a museum educator is um, in comparison to uh, maybe a, a teacher in a classroom I know you mentioned that it was something that you'd always wanted to do and um, mm-hmm. yeah I wondered what what's special about that I think it's still that really sort of raw excitement you get because they're the actual objects and I've never really lost that awe and wonder and so to be able to share that absolute passion that you know the sessions are based around our collections, whether it be an object, whether it be an archive document, whether it be an image, and just people get so excited. I remember um, one group of, there'd have been about eight-year-olds, and we were in the museum, we were doing a, a packing session, um, selecting items to pack to take with us for our, our imaginary journey, and um, one of the children went, is that oh it's his sleeping bag and I was like yes and it was is it the real one and I was like yes and then he shouted out really loud in the middle of me it's Oates's sleeping bag and there was like a thunder of stampede of feet as the whole class ran over and and then the whole session just fell to bits and it was all like this as soon as they realized they were the actual real items the excitement just went through the roof and I don't think I'll ever forget that session it was hilarious and exciting and 
just they were they really got it um it was very loud though so apologies to all my colleagues <laughs> <laughs> loudness is good i think it's a sign of enjoyment especially in sessions <laughs> and so how how do you go about teaching with those objects then i suppose is, is my next question i always sort of joke that if you came into our museum totally and utterly unprepared it's just a load of old old, old equipment behind glass the objects in themselves might not look very exciting it's the story they tell that's the exciting bit and I'm a firm believer in the hook of the story so if you tell a story if you realize the connection it suddenly gets really exciting and connections are made and objects all have a story to tell so it's it's interweaving those into your stories which you know are true stories who doesn't love a true story it just makes it even more exciting yeah yeah knowing that it really was it's a sleeping bag really had yeah. made whole mm-hmm. and so do you do you have a favorite maybe a favourite object or a favourite object to teach with or a favourite part of the collection? <laughs> mean, a mean question. question. <laughs> <laughs> I think my problem is that every time you ask me what my favourite object is, it changes depending on upon how I'm changing or what I'm feeling. There are just so many fabulous objects. I think the most poignant is the piece of rubbish the biscuit wrapper collected by cherry garrard from the tent where scott and wilson and bowers were found and it's probably well a very expensive piece of rubbish um but incredibly poignant and by itself tells an awful lot but then there are fabulous like some of the tiny inuit sculptures are exquisite i really like the frobisher gold sculpture in the arctic section what is that what's that of oh it's of a digger it's a tiny digger and it's called i think it's called frobisher's gold or something like that and it's it's harking back to martin frobisher gathering what turned out to be fool's gold and so yes it's again it, it tells so many stories so it's it's harking to back to that story but also about the modern mining and gathering of resource in the Arctic. So I think it's an incredibly powerful item. I also love the domed ceilings. They're just exquisite. Really fond of those. Um, really fond of the sculpture Youth Outside by Kathleen Scott. There's just so many items. I just, I don't know where to start, really. <laughs> There's too many. <laughs> yeah, for any of our um, listeners who might not know, in the um, Scott Polar Research Institute, there's a um, a memorial hall to Scott and the, the men who died on his final expedition to the Antarctic. And part of that are uh, two domed ceilings with maps of the Arctic and the Antarctic on them. And they're one of the most striking, I think, pieces of the, of the whole building, which leads me very neatly actually onto um, another question that I have for you. So we've spoken a lot about teaching and specific lessons and kind of events in the museum. But I know that that's not all that you do, and <laughs> that you have some um, hands in some um, pretty interesting projects as well. Um, and so maybe you could tell us a little bit about your um, textile map project. 
Oh, the textile maps. Yes. So the painted ceilings that you talked about, um, the 1934 ceilings, they are beautiful, but they are a snapshot of what we knew in 1934. And I love the fact the Antarctic is the wrong shape. That's always really tickled me. I think that's great. Um, and so I decided that it would be really nice as we are a research institute who hold a collection, if we could update the maps somehow. Now, um, I was never going to suggest repainting the ceilings, <laughs> but I thought about producing them in textiles as close in size as we could. So we started with the Antarctic and worked with a local artist, um, a textile artist. Each map, I think, is two metres across. So they're circular maps on a square background. And in fabric, the shape that we now know the Antarctic is <laughs> um, <laughs> was reproduced. And then research from our researchers was stitched onto that map and there's flaps where you can lift up and see what's underneath and there's pockets so things can go in they were designed very much to be used with groups whether it was a small group of children whether it was a group of adults um, whether it was um, partially sighted group they're very bright colors and they're very 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 tactile and so we're depicting as many different types of research as we could on the map I think there's about 20 items shown I think oh there's just there's so many I mean Lake Vostok is a massive silk pocket which you can get your arm into almost if you're a child up up to your sort of shoulder and it's designed to be silk inside so that it feels cold when it's laid on the mar marble floor and we never put anything in the Lake Vostok pocket it's almost harking to the fact that we don't actually know what's in there so that's quite exciting. There's there's a flap that's that's all icy and you lift it up and then it's all green and verdant underneath. Um, and there's a pocket inside where we have a fossil, um, fossilized glossopterous leaf. So it's all sort of showing and highlighting research in different ways. And then um, that was so successful. A few years later, we did the Arctic as well. And that highlighted our ongoing Arctic research, which was really lovely. So we've got the changing tree line, depicted we've got some of the light phenomena we've got quite a lot of remote sensing on there we had an MPhil student at the time studying longhouses in Newfoundland and Iceland and they're depicted and um, we also had Jane Franklin's signature from the archives because we have her diary collection so there's a whole range of things depicted on these maps so the idea is that we can take them out we can take them out of the museum we can showcase them to other people and it's really giving a little taster of lots of different research. So in many ways, because people are seeing it, touching it, hearing the story, it's really sort of sown that seeds and it stayed with them. So, yeah, I mean, learning wise, it's a really powerful tool because you're, you're um, accessing people's um, brain on lots and lots of different levels. It's not just them being told something or seeing something. And if you're touching it, if you're experiencing it in lots of different ways, you will remember it far more. I love that it brings together, as you say, the, the kind of um, very clear parts of the collection, but also um, the research that's happening at the Institute as well. And as you mentioned as well, you know, in a, in a very accessible way, I think there are really 
they're an awesome resource and a, yeah great thing for the museum to have so yeah I think really we've we've seen that being a museum educator then is is quite a varied job <laughs> oh, really varied I mean never would I have thought that I would work with an opera company to to you know produce an opera for children about Shackleton's cat Mrs Chippy that you know that <laughs> never occurred to me I I didn't think I'd be you know helping to produce textile maps just there's just so many exciting things we tend to do a really really big exciting project every other year or so and it's just it's brilliant it's really good and so is there maybe one of those projects or a moment or kind of something um, from your time the Polar Museum that really stands out for you, something that you'd really like our listeners to know about, to know that you've you've done or you've you've witnessed. I think it's a project that we were both involved in, actually, Henrietta. <laughs> I wonder <laughs> if this would come up. <laughs> so definitely the climate curation project was a real highlight. So that was 2019. So we worked with um, a PhD student, um, Dr. Matt Wise, and we worked, he was working at Selwyn College at that stage. And so he approached us wanting to do a joint project with us. And so as a museum, we worked with Selwyn College and the deal was we advertised via them and we were looking for 12 year 12 students to come and work with us for a week to help produce an exhibition about climate change. And um, it was fabulous. It was a really tough project. It took a very long time in the planning and interviewing, selecting, and then running the sessions. And they were stunning. They were absolutely stunning students. They were amazing. They produced a gorgeous exhibition, which Henrietta, you made happen. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it was a, it was a joy. Um, I, I think what, what really I think is most amazing about that project is that these were amazing students who mm, had an interest in in maybe in climate change maybe not even in the polar regions but they had an interest and in this mad week just a week mm. you know they learned about um really kind of cutting edge uh, scientific research and also about you know museum exhibitions and you know sharing that information with the public and those are two really huge topics um we really didn't make life easy for them we didn't <laughs> and they weren't all scientists either yeah and um, there were a real range of of skill sets and they they'd never met each other either <laughs> yeah yeah and they i mean they absolutely stepped up um to the plate and it was and, stunning <laughs> yeah produced just this amazing amazing piece of work and um, yeah, I, I completely agree. It's something that I like to, <laughs> I like to <laughs> tell people about as often as I can because I'm still so impressed and so I was so proud of the work that they they did. Yeah, and yeah that's definitely the the most recent highlight. <laughs> I have an I have another question which I think we maybe have have spoken a little a little bit about. But you know, what is the most I think kind of fulfilling part of this job as a museum educator? I think it's the well, there's so many different things. Um, there's meeting lots of different people, which I love. It's 
I've talked about like sharing that passion and excitement and, and seeing the awe and wonder, which just never loses its appeal. Um, but I think also it's the working with collections and researchers and making the connections and suddenly putting two and two together. It's, it's learning new stuff the whole time and looking at ways in which to not translate it, but bring it to different audiences. So it's helping the public access research or archive documents in a way that's fulfilling for them and is meaningful for them. So it's, it's yeah, it's being that bridge between the public and, and research and collections. <laughs> it's, it's, it's making that very boring looking tin suddenly the most exciting thing ever. <laughs> And we have, we, I mean, there are a few tins in the, in the polo. Just a few. Collections. <laughs> tins of lots of different kinds. That's not all that there is, I must. Also. No, no, that's it. there's lots and lots and lots of things. And again, that's the joy. It's not just a whole collection of very similar objects. It's not just a collection of photographs or just a collection of sledges. It's everything. Um, it's multidisciplinary and it's just wonderful brilliant collection great archives great picture library <laughs> what more could you want really all those resources to work with oh you couldn't <laughs> it is, as I keep saying the best job I have so many people um in fact a teacher approached me about a year and a half ago and um she said I want your job <laughs> It's the job I've always wanted. <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I have no plans to go. <laughs> well, maybe then, yeah, one of my kind of one of my last questions is along those lines, would what would you say to or would you have any advice for people, um, you know, people who might be listening to this podcast and working in the polar regions or in polar fields, um, but who might think that maybe you know a, a career in sort of traditional academia isn't for them would you have any advice for those people I would definitely say go and volunteer at a museum get some experience get some practical experience under your belt and if you don't enjoy it don't carry on you've got to absolutely love it because it shows if you don't so get some experience and I think also with with everybody you've got to hark back to what hooked you what got you interested what drew you in and you've got to re-engage with yourself at that age and remember that feeling remember the strength of that feeling remember the simplicity of what it was that got you hooked because you need to be able to do that for others. And so if you can provide that hook um, for different age groups, you know, you just keep going and you keep doing it and keep getting experience and keep enjoying it and good luck. That's great. That's such a lovely piece of advice. Yeah, I think definitely finding what hooks you and, mm. and sharing that is a, is a great piece of the career advice. And then very finally, just a kind of silly final question, I think. Ooh, right, that's okay. always, how, <laughs> always how I like to end, I think, with a silly final question. Um, is there a particularly good, I know you mentioned the finding Oates' sleeping bag, but is there a particularly lovely story from teaching that makes you smile, makes it feel like it's all, you know, it's worthwhile for the, those sorts of stories? 
Oh, I had a really lovely one from a very young child. It would have been key stage one, so between five and seven. And a child said to me, she said, "Um, polar bear's claws, when they've killed their prey and eaten it, how do they clean their claws? And I remember saying, do you know what? I've never thought of that. I don't know the answer. And so um, after the school had gone, I trotted upstairs and um, we did actually have um, a polar bear researcher um, upstairs at the time. <laughs> so I, I went over to him and I said, oh, how do polar bears clean their claws after they've had their prey? And he sat there and went, I don't know. I've never thought about that. <laughs> So I trotted downstairs really quickly and just caught the school group as they were as they were going and said, "Look, we don't know. We don't know the answer." And the researcher told me that you know they probably just scraped them in in the snow, but did they have a concept of having dirty claws? You know, we don't really know. And I think all of us were fairly thrilled by the fact that she'd asked a question that we didn't really know the answer to. I think that hooked her because I was like you're going to have to come and do some research yeah absolutely you can ask questions that the researchers don't know that's yeah I mean what better what better um, indication of how important uh, polar education in museums is than than and polar bear hygiene (laughs) yeah Yeah, polar bear hygiene maybe it's a new it's a new job someone listening to this could could take up <laughs> maybe somebody listening to it knows the answer if you do know the answer <laughs> please write it <laughs> we're, we're fascinated to know we know some polar bear scientists who would be as well <laughs> well i think that brings us very nicely to the end of of this episode of polar times um so thank you so much naomi for for coming to talk to me today and thank you everybody for listening um to this this episode uh don't forget to like rate and subscribe to polar times on your podcast app of choice um and if you would like to contact us um to tell us about how polar bears clean their claws or um if you have any questions for polar people or any feedback or even if you're interested on being on the podcast then you are very welcome we encourage you to contact us on these are polar times at gmail.com so that's these are polar times at gmail.com and you can also contact apex on twitter at polar underscore research um, so thank you so much again naomi and have a lovely rest of your day thank you bye Please note that whilst this is an Apex production, the views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own. Do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.